That was musician and 2012 National Heritage Fellow Andy Statman playing Old Brooklyn. It's from his latest CD, Old Brooklyn. Welcome to Artworks, the program that goes behind the scenes with some of the nation's great artists to explore how art works. I'm your host, Josephine Reed. Last week, we heard the first of a two-part interview with klezmer clarinetist, mandolin player, and composer Andy Statman. Andy is receiving the 2012 National Heritage Award for his klezmer music. Klezmer is the traditional music of the Jews of Eastern Europe. Andy defines it as Hasidic vocal music played instrumentally. Andy Statman is one of the people responsible for Klezmer's revival in the 1980s. But as we learned in last week's podcast, it's impossible to put Andy Statman in any neat musical box. He cuts an extremely wide musical path. He followed his initial absorption into bluegrass and the mandolin with a fascination with jazz and the saxophone. Never content to sit still musically, Statman then took up the clarinet and studied Greek, Albanian, and Azerbaijani music. Yet Andy Statman doesn't drop one musical style for another. He just keeps adding to his knowledge and sensibility, moving effortlessly from one genre to another. For example, he followed his path-breaking album, Jewish Klezmer Music, with Flatbush Waltz, a mandolin masterpiece of post-bebop jazz improvisations and ethnically inspired original compositions. However, in his latest CD, Old Brooklyn, Andy Statman presents a marriage of all his musical styles. You'll hear strains of bluegrass, klezmer, jazz, and blues all coming together in this brilliant work. Throughout the course of his career, Statman has released 20 of his own recordings and has performed on close to 100 others. He's worked with The Grateful Dead, Bob Dylan, Ricky Skaggs, Bella Fleck, Itzhak Perlman, and many others. He fronts the Andy Statman Trio, which plays weekly gigs around New York City. Last week, we heard about and sampled Andy's bluegrass and mandolin playing. He spoke about the importance of jazz, particularly Charlie Parker, John Coltrane, and Albert Eiler, to his own musical evolution. But by 1975, Andy Statman had begun thinking of his own Jewish musical roots. We pick up the interview with Andy meeting the man who would become his mentor, the legendary klezmer clarinetist and NEA National Heritage Fellow, Dave Terrace. I looked up Dave Terrace in the Union Book and went out to see him. And uh, I transcribed some of his uh, melodies on saxophone and mandolin. And at that point, I didn't have a clarinet. And he was sort of amazed that not only a person much younger than him would would be interested in this music, but that, that I actually did this. And we sort of hit it off. I became like a houseboy there as well. I wanted to play on the Albert System clarinet, which is what the old timers played. And... You know, he gave me clarinets, and he had no real way of teaching. And, you know, it was basically I just slowed down his recordings and of other people. And what I would do is I'd go there, and his wife would make us some tea and cookies and stuff like that, and we'd talk. Maybe he'd want me to take him out for a haircut or get something for him, and then we'd sit around and talk a little bit. And then he'd take out his clarinet and play for me for about an hour. I'd ask him some questions, and I'd say, Dave, would you do this this way? And he'd say, no, never this way, only this way. And in you know, what we call classical music, there's like an, an oral law of how to interpret songs, when and how to use ornamentations. 
and it's very logical, but it's, it, it can only be really learned through osmosis. It's something that can't really be written down. So he was really helpful. He had very strict feelings about a lot of this stuff and very strong opinions about a lot of it. And, you know, we became very close. I know that he'd been a very uh, tough character in, in the music business, but he was sort of like a, you know, another grandfather to me. He sort of um, wanted me to carry on for him, but not to be him. You know, he wants me to carry on for him in my own way. understood musicians are, are individuals and, and the way to carry on a legacy is, is not to be a carbon copy of someone but for that to take what that person taught you and move on from it. That's probably the way he learned also from his uncles and other people who we said were great, great players. Well, don't you think that's the only way any art stays vibrant? It has to move into the next generation and then it gets reconfigured in some ways. Yeah, I'm simultaneously a purist and also expansive at the same, you know, I mean, there are people who I've heard who would make records and, and do Django Reinhardt solos note for note, or Bill Monroe solos. And you can say, you know, why are, they, why are they doing it? It's not as good as what was improvised. On the other hand, though, they are keeping a certain aesthetic alive. They're really true to a certain aesthetic, and they're trying to keep the beauty of that thing alive. And it's an important thing, because uh, you need people who are preservationists, so to speak. In essence, is if you want to be an innovator in a style, you need to be a preservationist also. Because until you can speak the stylistic language fluently, you can't really understand how to innovate in the style. It's like a jazz musician. Yeah. If you don't know how to play the instrument, you're not going to be able to improvise. You have to know that instrument. You have to know the instrument, but you also have to know the language. Right. So, I mean, it's, I'm sure it's still possible to innovate, say, in, in what they call traditional jazz. But... You have to learn the language. I mean, each era in jazz or any music, they're all equally valid. One is not better than the other. They're all saying different things in different ways. You know, because one is older doesn't mean that it's less valid than something newer. The timeline is seen in terms of progression from not as good or sophisticated to better is really a fallacy because... um, really has to do with, with the power of expression and the, and the ideas being expressed and how they're being expressed. So with Dave, he said to me, there'll never be a, uh, you know, another Dave Taras. He says, but, you know, there, you know, there shouldn't be. You know, he's Dave Taras. And he said, because you have a lot of heart, you'll be able to carry this on. So, uh, and he left you his clarinets. Yeah. You know, I used to get grants for him to write music, so I, I try to stimulate. He was a great composer. His grants from the record companies. I, I try to get him into writing He's a great, great musician and a very, very aware person. And as it turned out, I found out we were distantly related. <laughs> Distant, but definitely related, you know. That's funny. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what was your first recording of Klezmer music? Okay, so, so the, the first recording I did was with Zev Feldman. And Zev is, back then was very traditionally oriented. And uh, we were looking to do was to try and recreate, you know, in our own way, uh, what this music might have sounded like 70 years earlier, you know, particularly if it had been in Europe. So for me, I had to have some stylistic blinders put on, because I would hear things 
I would see similarities between Junior Walker, who's playing I studied, and, and Dave Towers, you know, but I, I had to keep it within certain boundaries, both on the clarinet and on the mandolin. There really wasn't a mandolin style of this music. Based on my understanding of the ornamentation for the clarinet playing, I developed a mandolin style to, to go with it. ourselves we, you know we weren't looking to revive anything or you know we made a decision I said I really want to do this this music is not being played and we should just try and keep it alive for ourselves you know I never expected that you know it would become the focal point for me for a number of years and that was also partially by the economics of the business also because the gigs I got playing um, classroom music paid better and in better conditions <laughs> Then, you know, Plus I got playing in, yeah, then playing in bars with rock and roll bands or bluegrass bands or whatever. You know, I was still playing in a lot of different bands at that time. I knew you were playing in funk bands. I was playing, yeah, yeah. At the same time I was doing the record with Sev, I was doing this record called Flatbush Waltz, which was just, a, you know, a whole other thing. Well, describe Flatbush Waltz. That's a, that's a very important early record for you. To make a long story short, I started developing my own music, and I was very interested in, in doing a... Uh, something that just reflected all these different influences that I had studied. So it was, uh, in a way, it was a bit of a world world music record. There's stuff there influenced by Peeper music. There's this song Flatbush Waltz I wrote, which is a combination of, of a traditional Jewish song and a Bill Monroe song, and it has an introduction that, that owes a lot to a traditional, or I'd say classical Azerbaijani music. And then there were just these things that owe a lot to Eric Dolphin and Mingus compositions on there. Walls? No, I started composing when I was about 16. I started writing songs. With Country Cooking, I got sort of re-inspired to do it because all these people were writing songs and uh, Breakfast Special a bit. And then around the time I, I was doing the thing with Zev, I started getting into composing a lot more. Just started writing a lot. goes through stages and uh, it's just another skill I picked up, you know. Okay, here come the ignorant questions. Yeah. I hope you're ready for them. Yeah. And that is moving... From the saxophone to the clarinet, right. what's the difference in oh. terms of expression and what you can do with them? And I Probably because I played mandolin. I love the wooden sound of a clarinet. I love the feeling of a clarinet. And as great as the saxophone is, there are certain emotional areas it can cover as well as the clarinet. You know, particularly for me, the old Albert system cl- clarinets and uh, the music that was developed on them. They're just very soulful instruments, very, very beautiful instruments. You know, the, the tone and, and, and the music that's been played on them. They can take a lot of the beautiful things that a violin does, but then do whole other things with it. And in terms of playing free music on it, they're great also. 
the one of the is like if you have a tenor saxophone, though you have much more. It's deep. You have all these other overtones you can deal with, so you can get a a, a broader type of palette. But um, there's something about wooden instruments that I really like. Although I I love the saxophone, but um, probably back in the '90s, I just couldn't do everything, and I just sort of realized that I'm I, I sort of have to limit. So I was mainly into the clarinet then, and that's sort of what I did in keeping the mandolin going. And, you know, I go through different phases where, you know, I'm more into one instrument than the other. So. When you're composing, yeah. do you, as you're composing, do you think, ah, mandolin, ah, clarinet, or when you're done, you, or you weigh it and, and make a decision then? That, that happens sometimes, but, I mean, composing is the type of thing where it's, you have to turn it on, and then you have to turn it off. It's, at least for me. So if I'm writing for a record, records are very much like menus, and you need to have a variety of, say, different types of food, you know, fish, meat, chicken, desserts, you know, so it's like, you know, you write for specific types of melodies expressing certain types of feelings. Well, you need this type of song, you want this type of song, so you write going by that feeling. And I find that once I start writing, then whenever I pick up an instrument, I just start writing. So like I know like when I'm recording records, I'll, be, I'll wake up in the morning, have breakfast, and as I'm about to go to the studio, a song pops into my head, and I say, yeah, we need one of these, and I'll write it in the, in the taxi on the way to the studio, and then we'll record. The problem with writing is that, for me, is it can take over my whole musical thing, and I need to practice. So at some point I have to stop writing and not follow the ideas in terms of songs and it takes a day or two and then just get back into practicing and then when I need to write I sort of have to turn that on again. Not difficult and then just let it go but it interferes with my practicing. But professional songwriters, you know, a lot of them nine to five, you know, they get up, they go to the office and they write all day and uh, they don't have to turn it off. I guess they turn it off when they go home. <laughs> but, this is jumping around a little bit, but you have a trio. You've right. been working with a bassist and a drummer, drummer yeah. for a long time. Yeah, about 11 years now. Larry Eagle and, and Jim, Jim Whitney. Whitney. Yeah. And you play at a synagogue twice a week? Yeah. You said in another interview, I was really intrigued by this, you guys arrive there and you really don't have a set planned. No, no, we just play. A lot of what I do is improvised. So we, we just sort of see what we feel like playing at that moment and then see where it goes. And, and sometimes we'll do more, depending on the melody or, or whatever we pick, more literal interpretations or just really expand on them. And it, it's really just a matter of the moment and how, and how we're feeling. So that's a lot of the jazz influence, no? I mean, that's sort yeah, of in the jazz yeah, yeah, part yeah. of... See, for me, it's just I'm just interested in playing music. I can play traditionally in a number of styles... But that's not what I, I usually choose to do. I usually just play music and just let the music go where it goes. I have my own aesthetic, and I've developed my own languages in, in the traditional styles I play. And I just sort of let, and I've also developed my own style of music, so I just sort of play. Um, basically, I'm looking to go on some sort of exploration with the music, an emotional exploration, and get it to the point where the music just sort of happens and I become a, in some ways, almost an observer as well. It's just another form of talking when, when you're improvising. And even if you're playing a song where you're not improvising much, it's just melody, you're still improvising in terms of how you phrase and, and how you're going to ornament. and Everything really is improvisation. What I think is so neat about your music, many things, but 
the way it somehow combines the Hasidic tradition of music being transcendent and recognizes that that's what John Coltrane was doing as well. Right. And it, it really comes together with you. Well, I went through a period, basically, you know, after, you know, after me and Zev, Zev got more into, into uh, academics, I formed my own band, and uh, we were quite successful. But after a while, it's like with, like with bluegrass, it's just it, traditional music can become just another melody to play. What do you do with it? And, you know, so I had sort of lost my interest in playing, you know, the traditional music. When, um, you know, when I became involved in, in the religious community and the Hasidic music, it sort of rekindled my interest in, in Jewish music. And I realized that on many levels, this is where what we call klezmer is coming from, except that it, it, in many ways it was deeper and even broader. And I realized a lot of the feelings that I was experiencing from klezmer music were really feelings of, you know, Hasidic melodies. So I began wanting to explore a commonality with some of Coltrane's approach to modal music. And the thing is with traditional music, even though it's very powerful, it's also very fragile. And once you start putting chords to modal melodies, they can very easily distort, they can change the feeling and the idea of what the music is supposed to be. A good example would be if, if you listen to a lot of Irish music now, they'll take basically modal tunes and put many different chord changes to it. And in some ways, it gives a different emotional color to different parts of the tune, and it's very nice. In other ways, it destroys the original intent of the tune, because the chords determine what the melody is saying. That's why like someone like Bill Monroe, he would take a fiddle tune and keep it as unchordy as possible, while in Texas... They put, you know, they put lots of passing tones and things. There's a whole lot of different aesthetics are coming from Bill Monroe. So I was very interested in the way McCoy Tyner's sort of stacked fourths created a very compelling emotional feeling under modal music. So I looked for musicians who could play that and would have some understanding of the traditional Jewish music. And I always loved Elvin Jones. I used to go see Elvin play all the time. It would be incredible. And there's like maybe 10 people in the place. And I was, you know, like, there's Elvin Jones. I remember one time he's looking right at me playing. And I'm saying to myself, you know, he can't really be looking at me. Is he really looking at, you know, and, you know, and I was like, you know, no, he, I was really scared. You know, I was like, and, but anyway, so Elvin's music had a big influence on me, at, at, you know, Elvin's playing. So I began putting together, you know, ensembles to play versions of Hasidic music with this, with these types of approaches. And, uh. I guess the, the most well-known was this record called Between Heaven and Earth. I actually was picked by the Times as one of the top ten records of the year. I, I remember we, I got a great drummer, a friend of mine I worked with for many years, a guy named Bob Wiener and Harvey Swartz, or he calls himself Harvey S., the bassist, and uh, Kenny Werner, piano player, and myself. And I remember getting together with Kenny, you know, the first time I met him to do this. And, you know, I was with another of my friends, very Hasidish dressed. So we we're playing these things, and I remember he said, he's playing sort of like stride behind it. And I said, no, no. I said, Kenny, look. I said, why don't you play some stacked force behind this thing and be free with them? <clears throat> he was like, sort of like, you know, what? He was shocked. Like, he was, oh, yeah? I said, yeah. And we really hit it off. And I remember we did this record. In fact, the first 
cut on the record. It was a, a song I discovered by, uh, supposedly by the Maggot of Mezrish, who was the inheritor, I guess the second generation of the Hasidic movement. Very beautiful song, and it went into a sort of a f open improvisation, and uh, it was like really magic. sold out town hall, we did some concerts, and it led to a, uh, a contract with Sony. And Anyway, so and around that time, I started doing these things with Perlman. You and Itzhak Perlman yeah, made, yeah. made records together. Yeah, yeah. and touring, and uh, around the end of the time, I started exploring this, this sort of jazz Hasidic connection. I wound up getting uh, a weekly gig at the housing works down in downtown, it's a bookstore. They raised a lot of money for AIDS and things like that, and... I started doing it as, as originally duets, you know, of improvised music with uh, Bob Wiener or some other, you know, different drummers. And at that time, I had started using a pianist named Brendan Dolan, who uh, was, a, was a really great traditional Irish musician, but understood how to play in these, you know, in these fourths. And the series became successful. As things evolved, I decided I wanted to play a little bluegrass, and then we started two nights, and... One night would be Jewish, one night bluegrass, and then I just said, you know, I just want to mix everything up and, and not make the separation. And after a while, you know, I, you know, I realized that the chords were just limiting me too much. Chords become king. Chords really determine how you play and what you play. And I didn't want to be tied to what the chordal player was playing. <laughs> Hence the trio, which is sometimes a duo and sometimes just solo. That's how that whole thing came out of these duets I did at the Housing Works. In 2006, you had a pair of very different CDs come out. Awakening from Above, which is Hasidic music, and East Flatbush Blues, in which you return to bluegrass. That was a very interesting pairing. Right. And the East Flatbush Blues was sort of the first sort of more 
American type thing I had done in years. The last thing I did was a record called Andy's Ramble. It was a bluegrass record, probably back in the, it was recorded actually in the late 80s, came out in the early 90s. So it'd been a long time. It was sort of my reintroduction to the American, you know, music world outside of the sort of Jewish American music scene. Both records were very well received. Old Brooklyn, which came five years later? Yeah. In a way, it seemed like a bridge between those two CDs. Yeah. Well, what I, what I wanted to do was to just put a record out which just reflects a lot of what I'm doing and not worry about labels or styles. And the, the other two records were basically live. These were studio records, and I, I decided, you know, I wanted to bring in some of my friends to play with. So um brought in Byron Berline, you know, and Bruce Mulski, and, you know, John Scholl, and Paul Schaefer, and Ricky Skaggs, and uh, Bella Fleck, and a bunch of other people. Now, Ricky Skaggs does a very interesting song. The Lord Will Provide. It's powerful. Was that his idea, your idea? How well, did... that was, he had once sung for me over the phone, and I was very moved by it. And then we, we did a house concert at his house in Nashville. And as we were leaving, I said, Ricky, why don't you sing this song for the guys? And he sang it. And then uh, when he was going to come to do the session, we we're going to do some duets, maybe some mandolin duets and whatever. And he, and he said, he would, why don't you sing one? I wanted him to sing a, a little-known Bill Monroe song called The Long da- About Daybreak. I mean, when he got to the studio, he said, you know, I really don't know it that well. And how about if I sing The Lord Will Provide? I said, great. And he had told me he had tried it in different ways, and it was, it's in, I think he called it an Eastern Baptist style. It's, he hadn't had the style down to his liking, although it always sounded great whenever he sang it. Now he felt that it was a time, and I said, L- let's just do it with clarinet and voice. And to me, it sounds like some old field recording from somewhere. Let us learn 
on the clarinet playing, it's, you know, aside from the Jewish thing, there's a lot of the Ypres sound in there, and there's also a bunch of Charlie Parker in there, if you listen. It's funny, because after we did this, we felt like anything else we could do would just pale. We felt we did what we were supposed to do, and that anything else would just be, you know, superficial. So we just left it, and that was it. Because we originally had intended to record a few things, but this was so strong, we just... Just left, left it, it as yeah. is. Yeah. Where is your musical curiosity taking you now? You know, there's, there's a lot that goes on, and there's not there's not enough time. So not you know, true. yeah. So I mean, I just find that for myself, when I start playing, all these ideas come out and extensions of my own language, which I record, and then I want to go back and learn. So there's a backlog of that. I'm, I'm teaching at a mandolin camp, so I'm you know I'm sort of revisiting some mandolin players who I listen to occasionally during the year were big influences on me and relearning some of their stuff to teach it and, you know, reconnecting with a lot of those feelings and those ideas and those ways of approaching music. And at the same time, you know, I always listen to Charlie Parker and I've been, I've been very interested in writing songs in the older 50s rock and roll style that we play with, with the band. And uh, I've been sort of revisiting a lot of the old rock and roll saxophone styles, not like just Junior Walker and King Curtis, but... You know, anonymous guys on Dell Vikings records and things like that. And particularly on YouTube, there's, there's a ton of stuff. They're really classic blues solos or, or, or extensions of blues solos. These guys could, you know, the good ones could really play. They're really basically coming out of swinging the big bands and some bebop, but they put it in a certain type of way, and it's just an incredibly fun and uplifting and beautiful way to play blues. So I've been sort of re-exploring that, particularly using it on the mandolin. You know, also listen to people like, you know, old Gene Vincent things and stuff. And there's an energy in, in that early sort of rock and roll rockabilly, you know, that's absolutely incredible. Super intense and really great. So I've been starting to write some songs influenced by that and, and doing them with my bands. Also, I've gotten very interested in, in the way just sort of jazz from the 20s and 30s, the way some of those solos are, con are constructed and their use of arpeggios and things like that. And it's, I'd, I'd always been more bebop oriented, but... You know, there's such great color and creativity in the way these guys play. It's, it's really amazing. So I've been fooling around with some of that language. You know, I'm not interested in, in playing that music as playing that music, but using those ideas as, as part of the, uh, the well for my own music. You teach, yeah, as you yeah. said, mandolin camp. Yeah. What do you try to impart to your students? You know, on mandolin and on clarinet, I mean, the first thing I try and do is, is to get the students to realize that... You know, we're all equals and that some may have more talent, some may have less, but it's all sort of practice and practice is all desire. In other words, if the music moves you, then you'll have the desire to practice. And someone who may be supposedly less talented but really practices will eventually be more successful than someone who may be very talented and doesn't practice. I also try and make them realize that don't worry about mistakes. We're not computers. I told them that, you know, when I play a gig, if I start a song and I know it's not happening, I'll just stop it. You know, I say, well, I'm not playing music to torture myself for the next five minutes. You know, it's not happening. Forget it. You know, move on to something else. If you make a mistake, you make a mistake. It doesn't matter. 
I try and give them a real basis for relaxing in their playing. I try and do the continually. And then, in terms of mandolin, we might be working on certain stylistic things. I, I try and get them in, into the spirit of the music and what the music is saying and how to sort of make it their own and how to uh, get behind their own ideas. In terms of, say, klezmer music specifically, at this point, you know, I've come to feel um, klezmer, unfortunately, is, since it's not part of a living community, so to speak, there's no such thing as quality controls. So it's a style that can be sort of hinted at, but not really played, and people will think you're really playing it. It's a style that's very easily sort of invoked, but not really played. There's a way to do it, and there's a way not to do it. And this is what I learned from Dave Tarras. And I sort of feel a responsibility to teach my students how to really play it. And the way to teach it is time-consuming, but everyone gets inspired by it, and they really learn how to do it. But it's, it's a slow process. So with traditional Jewish instrumental music, I'm looking to convey a literacy in that music, a grammatical and an emotional literacy, as well in terms of mandolin styles, but... Overall, to try and uh, have the, the musician feel some sort of self-confidence in their own ability to uh, be able to play what they want to play. And not, not to worry about all these stupid little things. Not to feel pressured. Because I tell my students, the reason we're all playing is because it makes us feel good. And what can happen very early on is that you become a prisoner of technique and a prisoner of the music business. And then you sort of have no musical identity. You'll just play whatever people want you to play. And, you know, we all know great, great technicians who if you ask them, what do you really like to play, they'll say, what do you mean? The music is, it's, it's just something they do. It's like, you know, it's, it's, it's a job. It's, it's a job, yeah. <laughs> well, no one can say that about you, Andy. Thank well, you. So many congratulations. Thanks, and, thanks. and thank you for everything you've done. Well, thank Truly. you. Truly. Well, the, the truth is, it's, it's really nothing, to tell you the truth. So it's... This is what I do. It's not, not such a big deal. It is for some of us. Well, thank you. <laughs> that was Klezmer clarinetist, mandolin player, composer, and 2012 National Heritage Fellow, Andy Statman. Don't forget to mark your calendar for October 4th. That's when the 2012 National Heritage Fellows perform in Washington, D.C. Along with Andy, honorees include Dobro player Mike Aldridge, the Gospel Quartet, the Pascal Brothers, and Tejano accordion player Flaco Jimenez. It will be a night to remember. Go to arts.gov and click on the National Heritage Awards for more information. You've been listening to Artworks, produced at the National Endowment for the Arts. Adam Campy is the musical supervisor. Excerpt from Wedding March and excerpt from Gypsy Music and Serba from the album Jewish Klezmer Music, Zev Feldman and Andy Statman. Performed and arranged by Zev Feldman and Andy Statman. Use courtesy of Shanaki Records. Excerpt from Flatbush Waltz from the album Flatbush Waltz. Use courtesy of New Rounder. Excerpt from Magid and from Purim from the album between heaven and earth performed by the Andy Statman Quartet used courtesy of Shanaki Records excerpt from East Flatbush Blues from the album East Flatbush Blues used courtesy of New Rounder excerpt from For Spiel Improvisation from the album Awakening from Above used courtesy of Shifa Records 
excerpt from Old Brooklyn, Ocean Parkway After Dark, and The Lord Will Provide, from the album Old Brooklyn, used courtesy of Shifa Records. All music performed by Andy Statman. Ricky Skaggs is the singer on The Lord Will Provide, which was written by John Newton and arranged by Ricky Skaggs and Andy Statman. All other music was composed or arranged by Andy Statman. The Artworks podcast is posted every Thursday at arts.gov, and now you can subscribe to Artworks at iTunes U. Just click on the iTunes link on our podcast page. Next week, curator Sarah Cash takes us through the American wing of Washington, D.C.'s Corcoran Gallery. To find out how artworks and communities across the country, keep checking the Artworks blog or follow us at NEA Arts on Twitter. For the National Endowment for the Arts, I'm Josephine Reed. Thanks for listening.